Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership singer and composer Sue Ann Carwell. Since debuting as a teenager in 1981 after signing with Warner Brothers Records, she has released four albums under her own name and provided vocals for a cavalcade of other artists. They include the Brecker Brothers, George Duke, Brown Mark, Bobby Brown, Celine Dion, Freddie Jackson, Shanice, Slapback, Aaron Hall, Ricky Martin, George Benson, Ralph Trisvant. Rod Stewart, Sheena Easton, Jeff Lorber, Whitney Houston, Nancy Wilson, Lionel Richie, Britney Spears, Cher, and Christine Aguilera. In keeping with her Minneapolis roots, she brushed with being a Prince protege and wound up collaborating extensively with Jesse Johnson. Wow, impressive. Sue Ann, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Wow, yeah, you know, you got all that information, huh? <laughs> I told you I was going to do my homework on you. 
That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Welcome uh, to the show. Where are you coming to us from today? I am coming from beautiful Las Vegas today. It's kind of um, it's kind of chilly, but it's getting warm. It's warming up. So yeah, it's a beautiful day today here, though. How long have you been out that way? I've been here. Uh, I think mm, I want to say ten years now. 10, 11 years. Yeah, going on eleven. Yes. You, you get tired of the snow, huh? Well, you know, I actually left Minnesota a long time ago. So I lived in, um, I lived where you left in Los Angeles for like 30 years. Oh. Long time, yeah. So. Okay. Uh, Great. Well, I'm so glad you could uh, put the time aside to do this. I've been really looking forward to uh, going through your impressive history with you. And, um, you know, I want to uh, turn the uh, memory clocks way back and uh, find out how you first got into singing and what drew you to music. Uh, I first, you know, it started at a very young age. Um, uh, my father was a, um, a drummer musician and my mother was a, um, a dancer. Um, so I came from a showbiz family kind of anyway. Um, we, I was born in Chicago. We left to, from Chicago and uh, came to Minneapolis, Minnesota as a young child. Um, I was actually looking at Jelly Bean, the interview you did with Hammond, and wow, everything, a lot of things he was saying was so true about Minnesota when we grew up. Um, we didn't have a lot of black music there. And so I grew up listening to Chicago and Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Um, Ann Murray, you know, uh, that uh, uh, Tom Jones. And so I was impressed, I think, with Chicago, the Transit album. As a young girl, I think I had to be around eight, nine, something like that. I was impressed and intrigued with the horn section. And, the, and, and I've always been intrigued with um, the rhythm, the music. And so I would sit in my bedroom and make up these songs with melodies going, you know, with these, with like Chicago and uh, other artists, other things that were on the radio. And I just never thought that I was going to become a singer because I really wanted to be a, this model. I just, and so it wasn't until later on, um, I think I had to be about, 12 years old and uh, now I had to be about, I'm sorry, I had to be probably about 14 years old when my sister wanted to introduce me to a drummer in this group, this band in Minnesota. And um, I thought I was going to meet the boy. However, I was set up to audition for the band. And I was so mad at her because I was shy and I didn't, you know, but I would be singing around the house. And so um, uh, uh, actually the, the singer that was, that, was supposed, that was the lead singer in this band quit the band. And so um, they asked me, could I sing? And I said, no, not really. My sister said, yes, you can. 
So long story short, I sung Sweet Thing, you know, because her voice attracted me when I first heard her. And I says, I want to be like Chaka Khan, you know. Uh, and then uh, I was in the band, in this nine, ten piece band that never, we never made no money. We rehearsed more than we played. We were over North Minneapolis, like probably about two blocks from Andre and where Prince lived. Um, um, and so I got, that's, you know, that's kind of how it just kind of started was with this band and we would be rehearsing and, um, and then uh, I was um, a pro, I was, you know, I was kind of playing, I, I left that band, quit that band and started kind of playing around town, sitting in doing these gong shows over north. And uh, it wasn't until, and it was this one club called the Elks, I don't know if you know, it was like the elite like the pimps and the prostitutes and the hustlers and gangsters would come in there and I was so intrigued with the look of the 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 women that would come in there and it was like a it was you had to have this five dollar cover charge a year. You you had to be a part of the whole, you know, um uh their uh what do you call that? Uh membership? Uh, yeah. Exactly. You had to be this membership. And back then it was like $5 a year for the membership. And uh, so a lot of the musicians that uh, you've probably heard or interviewed or know about, I knew all their mothers and fathers would come in there. Andre's mother would come to this club and Prince's mother would come with her twin sister. They would come to this club and I'd be down there singing in this gong show. And I, and I would set myself up to win the money. I think it was like 50 bucks. And uh, I, would, I would scope the crowd out by the end of the night and be like, okay, they're drunk so, and they're older, so I'll do some blues. So I would win the gong show like, like every week. So finally, the band got so tired of me winning because nobody else could win. They just put me as the host of the band. So I was the host of this gong show. And it wasn't until <clears throat> uh, Andre Simone came down to the Elks one night to, to, he had heard about me and came down to check me out. And I was in there singing uh, Denise Williams and he, he approached me on a break and said, wow, you really can sing and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, thank you. And, you know, uh, and he says, I want to bring a friend down. I want you to meet him. He's famous and and you know, of course, I was just like, oh, okay, you know, I was like, okay, somebody over north is famous, okay. So um, the next night or the next week, I played, and um, it was about the third set because we used to do these long sets from like nine to one, <laughs> grueling sets, and. Um, and it's always when you get into it, you know, on your set, it's like it's so hard to get to take that break and then come back on. You know, you're, you're trying to dredge up this whole thing again, you know. And uh, in walks in Andre. And behind him, I just see kind of a pro. And... <laughs> And I was in there singing, and I seen Andre, and I seen this guy with the bro, and I looked, and then it, he kind of crossed over, and I was like, oh, wow, he is gorgeous, you know? And um, I didn't know who he was, and 
I went on a, I probably tried to sing the greatest song I've ever sung that had a lot of range. And I think it was Denise Williams Free. And <clears throat> after that, I think after that, yeah, on my break, he brings Prince up to the stage. Yeah, I want you to meet my uh, my friend. This is Prince. Prince, this is Sue Ann. And I was saying to myself, Prince, what an ego. I, I could I just remember saying, what an ego this guy has. I call him to Prince, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he said, you know, hi, how are you how are you? And and uh, you know, we kind of made little contact of, of talking a little bit and then he pretty much said, hey, uh, I'd like to record you. And I was like, okay, all right. And I, you know, I haven't never done a recording, so I really didn't understand what that meant yet. <laughs> so um, the next day he came to my house and picked me up. And I had to be, I think I was like, I probably was about maybe 15, 16 by then. Uh, and uh, we went and started doing this recording. And it was some really cool songs. One was a song called Wouldn't You Love to Love Me? And another one was called Since We've Been Together. And uh, me, him, and Andre, he, was, he had this house on France and uh, no furniture, I remember, and just sitting on the floor on some like cool pillows. And um, we did the song like on an A-track. Like a little, like the machine, like that with the reel with the A-track thing. And uh, he brought it, told his manager, hey, I'm interested in this girl. She's really, a, you know, a great singer. I want to name her Susie Stone. And I was like, Susie Stone? I don't know. I got a name already around here. People know me as Sue Ann. I don't know how to switch like that and be Susie Stone. <laughs> so I was not with the Susie Stone thing. That was... That was like the first for me. I was like, mm, I don't, I don't want to be called Susie Stone, because later on I'd have to switch probably back to my name. I don't know, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> he went to his manager, and his manager said, "Oh, great, cool." We put a package together. We were, we 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 actually then went to Sound Eighty in Minneapolis and recorded with um, uh, Bobby Z's brother David Rifkin, and. Um, had this amazing, amazing vocal, and oh, it was big and it was beautiful. I just remember just looking at these speakers and this whole, you know, council and this clean, beautiful studio, and I was just like, I really right then thought I arrived. I was like, oh, I've arrived. I'm, I'm big now. <laughs> Not knowing what was coming next. So I'm in the studio. I'm recording. I hit this run. This ad lib that is so gangster, but I but <laughs> I couldn't remember the run after I you know after um the music stopped and Prince because he asked me can you uh, do that run again and I was like what run he said the run you just did even though he David recorded the run and kept it he said the run that you just did. And I was like, I don't remember the run. I, I've always been this kind of vocalist that you have to get me at the tip of when I come in because I, I might give you some 
something that you really might like. You know what I mean? And so thank God that they were smart enough to capture, you know, everything, you know, in the in Tales of Song. So he got really angry because I couldn't remember the, the run. And and I kept thinking about the run, thinking about the run. He had me, he was trying to punish me. He had me sit in like outside the studio for like two hours trying to remember the run. And I kind of was getting the run a little bit, but I couldn't figure out. And he already had the run. He just wanted to be, he just wanted to be mean. <laughs> um, and he got angry. And he kind of yelled at me and was like, I'm, I'm taking you home. And I was like, okay, dude. I was like, I don't know what you're getting so heavy about. You know, it's just a run. But I guess to him, this run was just everything. So I felt really like he won't call me again. I told my sister, sister Prince told, told me to go home and took me home. And um, he didn't call me for about two weeks. And I was just like, okay, well, I guess I'll go back to the Elton thing, you know, or the Knack Reamer or one of these clubs. And so I didn't think no more of it. And then he called and then he called one day and came and got me. And uh, we went back recording, and I remembered that run. I worked, actually, I did, I'm sorry, I spent some time at home working on the run. And when I, when I came in, I popped that run so amazingly sweet that he, he fell out on the council and was just laughing, you know, because he just was like, oh, my God, you know. Uh, so yeah, so that that's part of kind of how it kind of started. Wow, I don't know. If it kept going. <laughs> that's a that's a great story. What a great start, uh, Suzanne. Thank you. Um, so at that point, when when Prince first came into that club, was his first album out yet? It was out. But it was you out. you were not aware of it, or were you, or? I wasn't aware of it yet. My my sisters and them were. They knew my brother um, TC knew who it was, but I didn't. I didn't really know him, you know. I, and plus, they weren't really playing that song yet. They weren't playing um, "Soft and Wet" a, a lot yet. It wasn't in like any heavy rotation, you know, and. Um, but when I seen the album cover, he showed me the album cover and showed me some some um, pictures of the shoot. You know, that's when I um, started to listen to the record. And had you heard of his group Grand Central, or were you too young? Or <laughs> I I didn't really hear about Grand Central. I knew Andre, and I knew uh, I really knew Sonny. Uh, I knew uh, oh, Sonny wasn't in that group. Um, I knew William Dowdy, who was Hollywood. I knew Terry Jackson. Um, I really didn't know Morris yet, but no, I didn't because I wasn't that far in like the bands heavily yet. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And I was young, so you know, I I couldn't get in everywhere. You know. So when you um, decide not to become Susie Stone, um, 
Were there other singers at the time? Were you hoping that maybe you would be like a Denise Williams type or a Shaka Khan type, or what were your aspirations? Um. Well, after you know, I, I wanted to uh, t I wanted to uh, tap in on this that after we ended up finishing the the uh, demo, Owen Hussey took it to Warner Brothers and uh, took it to a friend of theirs that signed Prince Russ Thyret, rest in peace. He just passed away, uh, and. Arnold Lark, I think it was Arnold Larkin and Mawson and all of them, they were like, well, they told Prince, she sounds just like you. And I don't really know what kind of transpired after that, only that when uh, he came and got me one day, he told me what happened. He says, however, I'm going to, um, I want you to be in my band. I said, Okay. I didn't see a band yet, you know, I just, it was just me, him and Andre in his house. He says, yeah, I want you to be in my band. We're going to go out on tour. I was like, okay. So um, he said, but I'm going to have my friend William Dowdy teach you congas and percussion. And I guess that's his old, that's his longtime friend from Grand Central. Um, and so I, I already kind of knew how to play percussions because my father was a drummer. So I, I played drums at a young age. I was already playing drums and he, my father was teaching me drums. And so I knew how to play drums. So I just needed to learn like paradiddles and flams. And so he was teaching me all kinds of conga percussion uh, accents and breaks and things like that for the song. And I think the song was, you can live your own life and I'll live mine. It was kind of in that, uh, I think that song, because it had a percussion break or something in there on the 12th. I don't remember, but um, I, I ended up like, I went to a rehearsal and it was me, him, Andre, Bobby Z, and Matt Fink used to be in his basement. And we'd be down there rehearsing, and I'd have these congas, and I'd be playing a little bit, you know, and I'd be still learning how to play. And uh, I, I, it was, it, it just was an uncomfortable, it was uncomfortable for me. Um, I didn't know what to expect, so I bailed. I was like, I want to do my own thing. I don't want to be in this band. I don't want to, don't look like it's going nowhere, you know. <laughs> I was like, I don't believe in this dude. You know, everybody's looking crazy like they want to be this, these white rockers down here. And I was like, nah, you're not like, you know, I just didn't feel the, the energy was just, the vibe was. And then I I, I left and, and um, I didn't like calling no more. He was looking for me. He had Andre out looking for me. And I was like, I don't. I'm good. I don't want to, you know. So, um, <clears throat> I ended up getting a deal though through him and Owen Husney, solo deal. Yeah, but um, other singers, no. There was there was really there was really no other singers there except I want to say um, kind of I liked I liked. Cynthia Johnson, you know, I, I, I was in flight time for like 15 minutes and then Terry fired me. 
and uh, um, I thought Cynthia had a cool voice. You know, she sung a Shaka song called Sleep On It, and I used to love the way she sung it. And I loved the group Flight Time because they were probably one of the best R&B commercial bands around. You know, where everybody else kind of wanted to do more, you know, the the Parliament, you know, the, the Jimi Hendrix type stuff. They wanted to do that, and, and Terry Lewis's band, Flight Time, was a great band because they had some of the greatest Best originals, man. Terry's a great writer, man. And um, and we were doing like Mother's Finest, you know. We were doing, we were just doing a different type of vibe, but it was, it was really, really a good band, great band. But singers, I didn't find, I didn't really find uh, anybody there that I that I that I could say, yeah, you know. And Minneapolis. Uh huh. So, I was, yeah, go on. So that was like around 79, maybe, when you uh, yeah. went off on your own. And did you get a deal in 79 or was it 80? Or? I think, well, it might have been 78, 79. I got the deal in 80, I think. 79, late 79, 80. Uh, it was not that far from me when I left Prince because, you know, I ended, I went, I played in this one hole in the wall, Chitlin gig that I used to do. It was a club over North um, called um, Cato's Lounge. And, and they had no lighting in there, Scott. It was just like the singer. And I was still hanging out too, again, with the, with the gong show band, you know, uh, and I was, I, I used to do the gigs in there, and, and it was a real down-home black club. Like, I'd never seen any white people in the club. You know, it was kind of like some Masons owned it, and it was a different kind of energy of a club. So um, all of a sudden, I see the owner come to me and say, yeah, there's some, there's some, uh, there's some white boys out here want to see you. I was like, white boys? Who, who, who want to see me? <laughs> I says, well, can can they come in? No, they can't come in here. I was like, well, okay. So I went to the door, and I seen, I was like, Owen Husney, what are you doing down at this in this area at this club? And they didn't care. They were. They paid the guy to come in, like paid him, paid him extra money to come in. And so the, the Owen Husney and Cliff Siegel and Alan Dorfman, they came in the club and watched me. And the, and then on my break, they said, we'd like to talk to you. And I was like, oh, okay. So they said, uh, we have a record deal for you. And I just kind of looked at him, Scott, like, you have to be joking. Me a record deal? How, how do I have a record record deal? Well, we we think you're just such an incredible singer and blah 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 blah. And um, yeah, I'm not working with Prince anymore. And I'd like to we'd like to manage you, get you signed. So they I re went in and did new demos with a, a gentleman called uh, named James Walsh who produced the next set of demos and I got the deal with Warner Brothers. It was pretty fast and quick and easy, you know. 
Wow, how excited were you? Oh, man. I thought You thought I arrived at that studio. I was like over the top. I was just thinking about all the money I was going to get in this advance and that I was going to live in a mansion and everything else. You know. What about your, your family? Were they surprised? They were shocked. They, they, they were like just over the moon and just all of a sudden wanted, they wanted to manage me. They were all like, okay, fine. Okay, listen, this is what we're going to do. We're going to ask for this kind of money and this and that. I was like, hey, I don't even know. <laughs> you know. Cart before the horse, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Go to the meeting with me and see what they're talking about. So, so those producers uh, had worked with Donna Summer and Silver Convention uh, that they connected you with, right? Well, actually, you know what? I had a choice. And the, 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 I, I wish I would have made another decision, Scott. That's probably would be the only thing that I would, that I feel like I would like to do over again, because I had a choice between like Skip Scarborough, George Duke, Maurice White, and Pete Lottie. Giorgio, Giorgio Moroder's partner, counterpartners in the music thing. And, you know, Owen and them were like, well, you know, we're going to make you the black blondie and we're going to, you know, you're going to be like, uh, you're going to be so cool. And you're going to do rock. And, you know, and, and I was like, yeah, that sounds good. So, you know, I kind of visualized and seen myself, this rocker up there. And then I was like, okay. So I said, I'll pick Pete Bellotti. But I had already been so familiar with Earth, Wind, and Fire, and the, you know, and, and Duke, and, but I was like, okay, that's all right. I'll just go with Pete Bellotti, so. Huh, wow. And did you get any feedback? Uh, was Prince uh, surprised or excited, or did he know you got your own deal, or? He was angry. He was pissed, livid, and um, he, I, I had, the, I had um, went to First Avenue that night uh, then after the record came out, and he walks up from way across the club, and I was, I think I was with my brother, some of us, oh yeah, Prince is coming over here. He said, "Well, let him come in." You know, I don't, I don't know if you know my brother T.C. Ellis. Who? Yeah, he had an album out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He said, "Well, let him come in." You know, this is before he had the deal. He says, "I want to kick his little ass anyway," and I was like, "You want to kick Prince's ass?" <laughs> so Prince walked over there, just strutting and bold, and said, "I don't like your album. I, the only song I like is Company, but the rest of the albums." bad and he walked away and I just was like okay whatever my feelings were hurt and it wasn't until probably uh, the Dirty Mind album when he called me and wanted me to open up for him at the Met and uh, the Met I don't know if you know what the Met is but the it's kind of like the um, what's what's the the arena in L.A. Um, Staples Center. Yeah, kind of like that. It was the Met Center. 
And um, he called me personally. You want to open up for me at the mat? And I was like, yeah. He says, get your band together. Here's my, get, here's my manager. He'll be calling you. It's like, okay. So I had, uh, I had a great, great band. But you know, prior, uh, oh, uh, prior before that, um, even before I got the deal, you know, I was, I, I started, I was in a group. I came, I was in this group, Enterprise. Morris was the drummer, and Alexander O'Neill was my counterpartner singing, and and uh, then uh, it was a great band. And then uh, later on, we incorporated Jesse, and um, this is before the time or any of that. But uh, we opened up for, you know, it wasn't them in the band, but it, uh, um, Enterprise would switch musicians all the time. You know, if you, you know, everybody came through this band, Enterprise, because we were a great band and we were always the ones kind of like opening up for everybody. You know, you had to come through us to get, you know, uh, any kind of um, promote publicity. You know what I'm saying? You know, yeah. So, did a good show. I had a, but I did have um, Tamara on the scene. Margaret Cox was the background singer for me before she even, you know, she was just, we would, we would just hang out and do, I would come down to, to the club and just hang out and sing with, with uh, her band, you know, that she was in, sit in, but the band was killing, great band. So we opened up for him. Wow. What, what did you make of, of Prince back then, though? Did you think he was sort of like eccentric or on a bit of a control thing or did you did you realize how gifted he was musically at the same time back then i yeah i knew that he was he was very gifted because i i seen it really firsthand and i've never seen that um he, um as far as the way he dressed i got it because he would tell me things like, you need to go look at some old videos, you know, and, you know, he's, he, he made this quote. He said, Sue Ann, whatever you do, he said, go the other way. You might not be a star, but you'll be recognized quicker. And I got that. And so I kind of started on stage kind of dressing provocative and doing that kind of thing. And he liked, he would come down and hang out and see me, but would never like, you know, he would come and sit in the band a couple times, you know. And uh, there was some conversation flying around that I had heard him tell like Jill Jones, you know, hey man, I want you to look like how Sue Ann is dressed. And then Jill finally told me like a year ago, yeah, Prince used to want us Prince was kind of scared of you, you know, because I was kind of wild and kind of, you know, kind of had a swag thing, you know. And um, she she told me, she said, Prince, I wanted, you know, to for you, you know, he wanted us to dress like you and look and have your kind of, you know. And I was, I was like, okay, whatever that means, but okay. But um, yeah, I knew, I knew, I liked his vibe. Uh, I I got it. I really, I really got it because he, he really was focused. He was focused on being a big, huge star. This was later on after I started 
um, with the Dirty Mind, and I would see him play, and he would call me up on stage, you know, at First Avenue to sing and do that kind of sort of thing. And so I, I got it, you know, and probably, too, because I went to Los Angeles at an early time, and so I was able to really see what he was doing, whereas a lot of the, you know, musicians from Minneapolis never even been off their block until later on. So I understood it. I was going to all of the clubs there, you know, El Probados and Carlos and Charlie's and Roy's Restaurant and, you know, and Osco's and, you know. Osco's, yeah. Yeah, Osco's and the Red Onion and, you know, and I was going to concerts out there. And so, you know, I was able to see like Fleetwood Mac and all of them when I got signed and Ricky Lee Jones. And so I got it. I understood exactly what he was doing and I was all with it, you know. A lot of people were like, you, you think, he, is he gay? I was like, no, he's not gay. Nah. He's, he's just going to become one of the biggest rock stars in the world, I'm telling you. Just because of how he just went, he was going the other way. He didn't care. He was competitive, focused, and just like, you know. So, yeah, I, I knew. Yeah, I was at his first West Coast show at the Roxy on Sunset in 1978. Ew, my sister was with him in the car, in the limo. <laughs> I heard heard about it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. No, no, no. Flippers, I think. Wasn't Flippers? Flipper, Flippers was after the Roxy. Right. Yeah, Flippers was um, like 1980, I think. And yeah. uh, Roxy was 79. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then... I saw him get booed off the stage at the Rolling Stones, and I saw him at the Santa Monica Civic after that one. Wow. Yeah. Well, let me ask you. How, uh, my sister was with him at the, when he was booed off the stage. She was there, and she told me the whole She told me how he got in the car, and he kicked the whole doggone cassette thing in the limo. He kicked it in, and he was pissed, and he just wanted to go home. And... She was trying to tell him, no, 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 man, don't, you know, and he was looking at her like, man, if you don't shut up, I'll be throwing you out. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, really angry when that happened myself. But um, but it was really cool to see him come back very triumphantly just um, less than a year later at the Santa Monica Civic doing his own controversy tour thing and just killing it. And then it just blew up from there. So Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so back to that first album of yours, though, um, that single, Let Me, um, Let You Rock Me, that was a, a damn good single, I thought. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I thought it should have been a bigger hit. The producers aside, how did you feel about the experience of, of doing that first album and how it came out and, and that experience? I was not happy because I had no kind of um, artistic creative input in it. Uh, yeah, I was new. However, it wasn't my kind of music. Um, there was no, Let Me Let You Rock Me was like the very last, like to the, it was to the, the, the midnight hour of being mastered. And because Russ Thyrett came down, heard the record and said, but there's no hit on this record. And so 
they started listening to Don't Stop the Music by Yarbrough and People. And that's where they got Let Me Let You Rock Me from. Mm -hmm. Andre came down to the studio. We were, we were recording the, rec the album at Rusk Sound on Sunset. And Andre came to, he was hanging with me at the studio. And um, they wouldn't let, I wanted him involved. I wanted him to play the bass. They wouldn't let him. And I just was like, I was done with the record deal before I just left. I was done with it because I because I just didn't like it. I didn't like it became it just wasn't it just wasn't you know, I was already like now listening to Bootsy and Funkadelic and I was already, you know, like analyzing and dissecting down knee deep and all of that and I was already like in tune with Earth, Wind, and Fire, the, the double album and the devotion album. And I was already in tune with Shaka. And I, I, I told them that I wanted a combination of that kind of thing, you know. Um, and didn't happen. When I, when I came in to record, the Water Sisters was there. And they must have knocked them songs out in two hours. That was the only thing impressive for me was, wow, these girls are like amazing. I mean, you know, this family, the two girls, I think, in Orange Waters. And um, but no, I didn't, I didn't care for the record. So you were, you came out of it disillusioned. Sounds like pretty much, yeah. That I thought definitely that was the best chance at a hit, though that song. Um, yeah. 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 Um, and then I saw a clip of you on some show in 1980, I think that year. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was a kick to see you in that uh, yeah. attire and that whole, you know, image. Well, well, you know, I mean, you know, that was that whole Minneapolis thing. And then this. Uh, this really great, this chick who had a store downtown in Minneapolis named Sonia Kashik used to have all these punk rock clothes and stuff in her store and, you know, Jesse, I mean, uh, Prince used to go down there and buy his stuff. So I was like, okay, well, you know, hook me up, Sonia. You know, she, she did all my hair and makeup and all that kind of stuff. And uh, she ended up becoming very successful in a makeup line. She has like her stuff in Safaria. And so, yes, but she, um, Sonia was fantastic. She had some great clothes, punk clothes and stuff like that. So, yeah. But it's like, it's kind of like, it's when sort of like disco and punk came together as a look. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, when you're, you know, when you're 17, 18, you know, and I kind of followed in the footsteps of him and how I think he would, I would kind of pattern myself kind of trying to after him, but he didn't really know that I was, but I guess he maybe did know how, you know, and I was from, and I'm from Minneapolis. So it's like, Hey, you know, I can get away with it. I got a record deal. You know, I can, you know, do all this stuff. So yeah, that was yeah, that was that was a that was quite an, quite an attire. So, what what year about did you move to LA? I moved to LA uh, kind of 
kind of soon after that record. I had I had got stung by L.A. and the whole scene, and uh, I found myself feeling, um, you know, kind of almost, you know, just not appreciate, you know, it appreciated in your town. It's kind, of, you know what I mean. It's like. Uh, I kept I kept notice you know I kept noticing now bands were forming there and everybody was migrating there from these different towns trying to do the Prince thing and and um, and so I decided that I was going to pick up and leave and I just left and then um, did you uh, drive out or did you fly up? Oh, I flew. You know, I had a I had a cool boyfriend back then. You know, that had a lot of money and wanted to get into the music business. So you know, he was he was like, "No, nah, you're first class. I fly you." <laughs> so, yes. So at that same time, in the early '80s, I mean, the the time was taking off uh, under Prince's wing, and and Prince was really starting to ramp up. And Vanity Six came out as a protege act, and all the the Minneapolis sound. Uh, was taking the airwaves by storm. What kind of connection relationship did you feel to that at the time? And were you surprised at all that it was blowing up like that? No, because I, I, I kind of seen it, you know, I was, I was dealing with Morris day a lot, even all through the transition. So I I knew what was going on. I, I you know personally, I felt kind of left out from all of them because you know um, even though I was the first female to come out with a record, you know you just kind of think that hey I I know all these cats you know maybe they'll you know I didn't have a record deal then. I was just kind of on my own, kind of, you know, connecting with people and entertainers and going to the clubs and promoting, you know, and getting to know people and just going through life on life terms type stuff, trying to figure out, you know, how can I get another deal? How can I, you know, I had kind of just left everything back behind me and just didn't look back. And so when, when, you know, when the time and Jesse and all this started taking off, every time Prince or something would come on the radio in LA, I just turn it off. I didn't even wait. <laughs> turn it off. I don't want to hear that. You know, and um, uh, yeah, I I knew though. I I already knew. You know, I already knew everything what was going on, but I just didn't hear. I didn't hear those words like, "Hey." I know what you're going through, Sue Ann. You know you are a girl. Let's let me let us produce you. You know let, let let's you know help you to get. They didn't do that. You know, mm. and I get it. You know they're excited. You know they're, you know, you know they they're getting this fame now, and they're you know in L.A. and they're doing their thing, and they're you know on tour and everything else. Um, I just, I just kind of, I guess, had expectations back then of, hey, your girl don't have the deal no more. You know, can y'all help? Can you help your girl? You know, so, but it didn't happen. 
Well, when were you with? Um, oh, okay, you just did the one for for Warner's. Mm -hmm. Then you went to MCA. Yeah. Um, but I mean that situation was volatile also. You know, I mean the time guys splintered out and Jimmy Jim Terry Lewis went off on their own and uh Vanity was a one off record. Right. You know, so um it was not stable anyway. Yeah, I I I uh I started to see that I was with Morris um the whole time of the Purple Rain. Um movie came out. He, he hated it. He didn't want to see it. We was hanging together pretty tough. And um, he was very, very, um, very upset. And just, you know, just was definitely dealing with a lot. And so, you know, it was just time to numb out and just go through it and, you know, go through what he was going through. And I was kind of still kind of in limbo, you know. And uh, I kind of just at one point just started disconnecting myself from everything because I had to, <clears throat> you know, I just had to change the direction on what I was doing and get focused on, you know, getting another record deal. And so my brother came into the picture because my brother, Carl Carwell, was with George Duke. And so he was working on a lot of the... Um, a lot of George Duke stuff, and then he was working with everybody, Nita Baker, and he ended up being the singer on, the, on one of the tours for the YMCA group. YMCA. Village people. Yeah, then he became the lead singer for a record for Heat Wave, and, you know, and um, then he um, was in uh, Earth, Wind & Fire. He went on tour with them. Um he introduced me, you know, I said, I, I need to do a demo. I need a deal. I don't have no money. I don't have nothing. You know, I, they left me tie and dry. So I said, I need some help. And he was already kind of connected in L.A. And, and he introduced me to an amazing producer who was my very best friend. He ended up passing away. It was Robert Brookins. And um, I don't know if you ever heard of Robert Brookins, but... Yeah, as a producer, uh, mostly, yeah. He, We ended up, like, kind of trudging together on getting a deal together, you know. So he, he did a demo on me. I think I was um, – I did the demo in um, uh, for A&M. I was doing the demo, actually, for the A&M with um, – what's that guy's name? He signed. He, signed, he was like a – I think he's like a part of Michael Jackson's estate, but he was um, – or the yeah, uh, John McClain. That's who it was. John McClain from M from A and M Records was interested in me, so I did this really great demo. And um, uh, a gentleman uh, and our guy came down, really looking at Robert to sign him from MCA, uh, named Lil Silas, and heard me in the studio. And was like, who is she? He said, that's Sue Ann. Sue Ann from Minnesota, Minneapolis? He said, yeah. He says, I want to sign her immediately. I've been looking for her. So, boom, there it was. <laughs> you know, 
ended up getting signed to MCA. But before I got signed, uh, Scott, I was approached by a manager, another manager, the guy, the, the friend of mine was my boyfriend who got me the deal. You know, we were kind of in limbo waiting for the contract. And I think I got mad at the boyfriend and I met uh, this, uh, this uh, other manager and producer. He wrote a song for, he wrote Monster Mash. I don't know if you remember that, the yeah. television show. <laughs> he wrote that song and I signed, I signed a contract with him. Within 24 hours, I go to a restaurant. I make up with the boyfriend. We go to a restaurant in, um, and he, he pulls out the contract from MCA and I went, uh-oh, I got to tell you something. He said, what? Aren't you happy? I said, uh, yeah, but I got to tell you something. I said, I signed a contract with this guy. I, I don't want to mention his name, but I signed a contract with this manager producer. He said, who? I told him who it was. He said, oh, get him on. Uh, we got to get him on the phone. They had a conversation. Next thing I know, the guy fills out, uh, puts out this big, letter to every record company saying he manages to land Carwell, don't sign her because you have to call me first. And so my boyfriend slash manager ended up having to pay the guy off within 24 hours. Mm. Nothing. You know, I mean, I, I, we didn't even get a weekend, me and this manager, to even get anything done. Wow. And this was like 86 or 87 or what? 85, 86, 85, 86. Yeah. You're good. You're good with how are you knowing all this timeline? Say, I've been doing this a long time. I know. I'm kind of jumping around, Scott. That's cool. I'm going to keep it on track so we get the chronology as, uh, as good as we can. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, so had you started doing any session work by that point? Because I know you've done a lot of session stuff. Mm. Yeah, uh, not really. I, I did that. My brother uh, was doing the daytime record uh, and asked me, do you want to sing? You want to do a session? And I said, I don't know how to do a session. He said, it's the same thing you're kind of doing when you're doing your record. You're just singing backgrounds with somebody else. And I was like, okay. So I went in with him to do, that was really like my really first big, you know, session where, you know, here's Skip Scarborough in here. Here's, um, what's the guy say you love me? What's, what's his name? Um, he passed away too. Uh, Anyway, great singer. Oh, um, I think Charlie Wilson kind of patterns himself after this dude. Um, with all due respect, Charlie Wilson, because I love Charlie. Um, but that was a session I did, the daytime uh, uh, session. And I was just blown away that I did a session like that with all these big stars in here, you know. And, uh, but yeah, I haven't really did, wasn't heavy in it yet. Well, but, but the first time you recorded really was back with the Brecker brothers, right? And your brother? 
Well, the first time I really uh, like uh, what that I really recorded was you know me and Prince and the Sound Eighty. But I but I'm but when I mean like really on a session level, yeah, that was the session the first time for me. Uh There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.